Heavenly Father, I pray that uh, the few moments we have here today, that you would take the few morsels, few morsels of your word, and I pray that you would multiply it to feed the masses as you did once so long ago. I ask that uh, my words would be your words, you'd make your words clear to us, speak to us, and Holy Spirit, we are listening. So we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Well, uh, you know, it took Pastor Mark, myself, Brother Bob, and uh, Pastor Nathan Carter, and Pastor Brian Price, two full months uh, to preach through Philippians. I'm going to preach through Galatians all in one sermon. Okay, so I hope, uh, I hope you brought your bag lunches. Just kidding. This will be fine. If, 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 you think, if you think you understand Galatians, if you think you understand grace, you don't. I'll just say it up front. You don't, because this was an eye-opener for me in many respects. Uh, let me just throw out, you know, four questions. These are, this is just a little test, a self-test on grace. Just ask yourself these four questions. Do you, fear, do you fear that your entire day or part of your day might not go so well as expected because you missed or you didn't have your quiet time this morning? You don't have to raise your hands or anything. Just answer this question. You think that your day might not go so well as expected because you didn't have your quiet time. Question number two. Do you assume you can do something something, anything, to make God love you more or any less? Question number three, do you believe you've been called into God's service because of your qualifications or worthiness? Question number four, can you think of someone you look down on? If you answered yes or even a partial yes, to any of those four questions, you are struggling with grace. And, you know, uh, those of us who, Pastor Michael uh, and I, we, we've gone through uh, the Evangelism Explosion Program, and we have that nice acronym, GRACE, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense. This is going to go ten layers below that. Okay? The truth is, every human being struggles to grasp the, the biblical truth of God's grace, this idea of God's unmerited favor. Everyone is born with a nature that insists we can make it. We can make our own way to God even after we've, we're saved. And we know we're saved by grace. There are still traces of a performance mentality that we all struggle with because we think we can earn God's favor by what we do, even as believers. So if the apex of Pauline theology is, uh, when I, I'm talking about the zenith, the highest peak of Pauline theology, or in the, the four, what we call the prison epistles of, of Philippians that we just preached through, uh, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, those are the 
those four books are the apex of, the, of Pauline theology. Galatians is the foundation that, that, that those, uh, those books are built on, those letters are built on. It's Galatians. Okay, Galatians was most likely written to young churches that Paul had planted during his first missionary through Asia Minor. Galatians is often referred to by many as the Magna Carta of Christian liberty. Okay? The apostles' introduction in verses 1 to 5 sets the tone for the first chapter and beyond that for the entire book. And I'm going to read... Uh, and you'll need your Bibles because we're covering the whole letter. Uh, I'm going to read the first five verses, and I'm reading from the English Standard, the, the ESV, English Standard Version. You guys uh, can follow with the NIV. If I don't use the ESV, I'll get, my, I'll get in trouble with my brother Bob Burns over there. So let me read from the ESV. Paul, an apostle. Not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches in Galatia, churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This letter is addressed to churches in Galatia, likely churches that were just beginning to grow. Okay, These were church plants. The most important background information deals with the group of people that they called the Judaizers, who had infiltrated the church. Okay, These were spies. These false teachers were saying that in order to be saved, you had to believe in Christ, plus, plus, you had to basically become a Jew. In other words, you had to follow the Old, Old Testament laws, and most notably, you had to be circumcised if you were a man. This, is, this issue of circumcision is precisely what the Jerusalem Council had to address in Acts 15. Remember Acts 15? Acts 15, 1. Luke tells us the issue being discussed. Luke says, some men came from, down from Judea and began to teach the brothers. Unless you're circumcised according to the custom prescribed by Moses, you cannot be saved. Well, the Gentiles in Jerusalem were coming to faith in Christ, but a group of Jews were saying that in order for them to be accepted in the church or to be Christians, these Gentiles needed to be circumcised. This was a huge moment in the early stage early stage of the church, because this issue was going to decide whether the gospel would stay pure or the church would adopt additional requirements that was not necessary for salvation. And that would nullify grace. Okay? Thankfully, the church declared that circumcision was not necessary for salvation, so that at the end of Acts 15, the council set Barnabas and Paul along with several other men to share this good news with the Gentile churches. That's in Acts 15.22. It was good news for the churches. It was welcomed warmly by the churches, but even more importantly, for the sake of the gospel, the purity of grace was maintained in the body of Christ. Now, Brother Michael from Voice of the People, 
I, this is an audible, okay? This was not in my sermon because you shared what you shared about the poor. I got to throw this in. I, was, I, I did not mean to do this, but this is an audible. This only adds to the time of the sermon, brother. Uh, in verse 10, in chapter 2, one of the things that the Jerusalem, Jerusalem Council encouraged Barnabas and, and Paul to do it says in, in chapter 2, verse 10, they asked us to remember the poor. They asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. I mean, you got this theological heavy discussion on circumcision in the Old Testament law, and he throws in one verse on the poor, remember the poor. Why did he do that? Why did he do that? Because... Paul was to organize collections for the poor, mainly the poor Christians in Jerusalem who were Jewish. Okay? So it's recorded here that Paul did, in fact, undertake a major relief effort on their behalf. Okay? Throughout Scripture, genuine preaching of the gospel in every age, in every era, must be accompanied by the meeting of physical needs as well as spiritual needs. Just as Jesus healed the sick and cast out demons along with his preaching ministry. That brother Bob was from the ESV commentary, just out of transparency, because I did an audible. I just read it word for word, okay? That's important. So anyways, back to the sermon now. For the sake of the gospel, the purity of grace was maintained in the body of Christ. Verse 6, verse 6, chapter 1. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and you are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is any other one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Legalism will use doctrinal heresy to infiltrate the church. It's clear that Paul is directly confronting the Judaizers head on. They were known as legalists, okay? They were attempting to invade the church in Galatia. They were troubling the church in verse 7, throwing these believers, young believers, into confusion, perverting the gospel. There will always be threats to the purity of the gospel, so we must guard against these even in the church today, especially in the church today. Legalism is one threat that continually reemerges. It shows up in different forms. But let's define what that big word is. Legalism, what is it? How does it show up in our lives? How does it show up in our churches? Legalism is, first of all, anything we do or don't do in order to earn or curry favor with God. You get that? It's concerned with rewards to be, to be gained or penalties to be avoided. This is a legalism that is self-forced, and we force it on ourselves. Second, second legalism insists on conformity to man-made religious rules and requirements which are often unspoken, but nevertheless very real. <laughs> Let's hold on, sister. To use a more common expression, it requires conformity to the do's and the don'ts of our particular Christian circle or, or clique. 
We force this legalism on others or allow others to force it on us. It is conformity to how other people think we should live instead of how the Bible tells us how to live. More often than not, these rules absolutely, they have no biblical basis. Now, as Pastor Mark mentioned from Philippians 4, and I told him he wrapped up too fast on Philippians, so i got to go back to Philippians here and reteach you the context of this. He mentioned from Philippians 4 a couple of weeks ago that we strive for uniformity or unity, not conformity to man-made rules. Okay? Like the Pharisees of Jesus' time, we have tried to help God just by adding on our man-made rules to his commands. Jesus' charge against the Pharisees recorded in Mark 7, 6 to 8, is still valid today. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the traditions of men. This may seem like a rather severe charge to bring against contemporary Christianity, but it is true today. There are far too many instances within churches where our man-made traditions and rules are in practice more important and even higher than God's commands. These two descriptions of legalism are closely related. And more often than not, we try to curry, we try to earn favor with God in the area of man-made rules. Or we feel guilty because we failed in keeping them. We do or don't do a particular thing because someone or some group in our cultural background tells us we ought or ought not to do it. These oughts, these ought-nots, are usually communicated by people in such a way that the favor or the frown of God is tied to our compliance with these rules. We need to at least understand that we can do nothing, you can do nothing to earn favor with God. And His favor is given solely by His grace through Christ. Our practice may lag behind our understanding, but we cannot begin to practice the truth until we understand the truth. Paul's called, Paul's called to stand firm in our freedom in Christ, not let ourselves be burdened by a yoke of slavery, is just as valid today with our rules as it was in the Galatians' day with the Mosaic Law. Through Paul, God called us to be free. He said in Galatians 5.13, You, my brothers, were called to be free. In fact, God just doesn't call us to freedom. He actually exhorts us to stand firm in our freedom, to resist all efforts to abridge or destroy it. Despite God's call for us to be free and His earnest admonition to resist all efforts to curtail it, There's very little emphasis in Christian circles today on the importance of Christian freedom. Just the opposite seems to be true. Instead of promoting freedom, we stress our rules of conformity. Instead of preaching living by grace, we preach living by performance. Instead of encouraging new believers to be conformed to Christ, we suddenly insist that they be conformed to our particular style of Christian culture. We don't intend to do this. We would earnestly deny that we are, yet that's the bottom line effect of most of our emphasis in Christian circles today. 
We're much more concerned today about someone abusing his freedom than we are about guarding it. We're more afraid of indulging the sinful nature than we are falling into legalism. Yet legalism does indulge the sinful nature because it fosters what? It fosters self-righteousness and religious pride, which we know Jesus spoke against in the strongest terms. Legalism also diverts us from the real issues of the Christian life by focusing on the external and sometimes trivial rules that we make up. So legalism appeals to our fleshly pride, and the Apostle Paul is warning them of the dangers of departing from the gospel that they had received from him. And he said in Galatians 1, we're in uh, verse 8 and 9, I say unto you that if anybody preaches unto you any other gospel, and that which you've received, even if it's an angel from heaven, let him be anathema. That is, can I put in simple words? Let him be damned. That's what the Apostle Paul said. That's a strong statement that comes from his pen. But he doesn't stop there. He immediately goes to say, Again I say to you, if anyone preaches unto you any other gospel than that which you have received, let him be anathema. Let him be damned. See, when the Jewish writers wanted to call attention to something of particular importance, they used this technique of verbal repetition. They'll repeat themselves. So Paul repeated this twice. His reaction to the one who introduced that doctrinal heresy. Let him be accursed. This is his way of saying, that person is toast. They are doomed. The word anathema is the strongest single Greek term for condemnation. Most cults are based on a doctrinal heresy of works and appeals to the flesh. It tells you, if you'll just stand out there in the street corner at Broadway and Wilson, if you'll distribute so many tracts, you sacrifice so much of life, if you will contribute your money, even to the poor, if you pray or attend numerous meetings, even prayer meetings, then your good works and hard effort will cause God to smile on you. Be careful here. Ultimately, if the good that you, if the good that you do outweighs the bad on the day of judgment, you will finally earn God's favor. That is man's glory because you added to your salvation. On the other hand, grace says that you have nothing to give. You have nothing to earn. You have nothing to pay. You couldn't pay to get your way the salvation if you tried. Salvation is a free gift. You simply lay hold of what Christ has provided. I love the book uh, Transformed by Grace by Jerry Bridges, Navigator, Bob, you know. He says that often we do not enjoy our freedom in Christ because we're afraid of what other people may think. We do or don't do certain things because of a fear that we, we will be judged or gossiped about by other people. But standing firm in our freedom in Christ means we resist the urge to live by the fear of what others think. So Paul asks himself these questions in verse 10 of chapter 1. Verse 10, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? 
If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Chuck Swindoll says that we put a lot of effort into training men and women in our Bible schools and our seminaries for ministry. But there is not an equal effort in training church, churches and church congregations to prepare for pastors, to receive pastors. What I'm going to say is extremely sensitive, but I'll say it because it's the full counsel of, of God. That is most unfortunate. Listen to what Chuck Swindoll says in his book, Grace Awakened. Church congregations need to know when to let a pastor lead, how to respect his judgment, and the importance of following him with confidence. Yes, he needs to be deserving of such respect, and he needs to be accountable. No question about it. But the tragedy is that there are numerous pastors who seek the favor and strive to please people at any price. I don't know the quicker way to ruin a ministry, or for that matter, to be consumed with anxiety. True spiritual leadership cannot occur as long as the leader runs scared of what people think or say. I am begging you, I am pleading with you, as we prepare to receive a new senior pastor, you have got, this is non-negotiable, you have got to give that new pastor grace to lead, to serve as God has called him to lead and serve. And I've, I've always prayed, Lord, never let me be the one who stands in our leader's way. If I'm in the way, get me out of the way so he can lead. That has always been my prayer. Any position of church leadership I serve in, that is my philosophy. Do not let me be the one. Do not let me be the stumbling block to our leader. Galatians 1.10 should be at the forefront of our minds when we're involved in church disagreements. Here's what this means for us as the church. We can have disagreements over some things, but we must unite on the essentials of the gospel. If you don't unite on the essentials of the gospel, all bets are off. This is, this is what is first most important. Yet sadly, in many churches, more people divided over issues like the style of music that is, doesn't even pertain to the gospel. Galatians 1.10 is a transitional verse which links the previous and the coming sections. Okay? Paul expresses his ambition to please Christ, not men. Apparently, some thought that Paul avoided preaching circumcision and the law as a requirement because he wanted to gain favor with the Gentiles. Well, the next phrase comes, however, shows that he has no interest in pleasing people because his goal is pleasing God by preaching the true gospel. Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. 
In other words, if Paul desired to be a people pleaser, then he would never have turned his life over to Christ. Paul's goal was not to receive glory from people like you or me. His concern was for the glory of Christ, the health of the church, the destiny of the souls of men and women. I'm not even out of Galatians 1 yet. The main truth in Galatians is this. The main truth in Galatians 1 is this. God's pleasure in you, God's pleasure in me, is not based on your performance for God. We define legalism as working in our own power according to our rules, ultimately to earn God's favor. The Judaizers were advocating good things, which is why we've labeled their actions as right behavior, wrong belief. They had the right behavior, but their belief was off base. Circumcision was important in Jewish life, in addition to a variety of other laws established for the people of Israel as part of God's Word. None of the Old Testament laws were bad in and of themselves. But laws become legalistic when they're accompanied by by that belief that in doing those laws, in performing these acts, a person can earn merit before God. And your merit means squat before God. Today, our problem may not be circumcision or the Jewish law, but there's certainly a host of other things that we might do that falls into this right behavior with wrong belief. Here's some. Here's some. Having a quiet time. Having a quiet devotional time. Studying the Bible. Avoiding certain sins. Coming to worship service. Helping other people. Even helping the poor. All these are good things, but when we do them thinking that we're earning God's favor, that's when we become legalistic. All of us have this tendency. We're all recovering legalists. Ever heard of recovering alcoholics? We're recovering legalists. We're all born with a sinful nature, thinking we can earn our way to God. Well, this legalistic mindset carries over even after conversion. Paul's words then should serve as a warning to professing Christians. Paul's words. We must avoid this legalism, which is right behavior, wrong belief. We must also avoid the other end of the spectrum, which is hypocrisy. You thought the last one was tough. Get, Get ready. Hypocrisy, which is believing the right things, but behaving badly. As we just saw another high-profile evangelical leader with his wife fall. Okay? We say some things. You tell your students you can't drink, you can't have sex, and then you go out and do it. And Paul addresses hypocrisy head-on in chapter 2 when he confronts Peter, the apostle, at the church at Antioch. This was a church that was made up largely of Gentile Christians. Now, I am convinced that Antioch was the first Southern Baptist church. You know why? You guys know why. When Peter came to this church, he was was having a good old time. He was eating all that potluck, potluck lunches and dinners up the kazoo. I mean, he was hogging it out. That's why they're Southern Baptist church. So, 
Now, say that may not seem significant, but it was a huge deal, okay? Huge deal for a Jewish guy like Peter, because for centuries, Jews were known for their strict laws and their separation from non-Jews, okay? Under the Old Covenant, God established certain dietary laws in order in other commandments intended to keep the Jews from intermingling with the Gentiles and being corrupted by their idolatry and immorality. This made eating with Gentiles particularly particularly problematic. Gentiles ate certain foods that were forbidden or unclean to the Jews. And even sitting at the table with them was considered by some to be impure. Table fellowship was more than just inviting someone over for a meal. It was often considered to be a sign of acceptance. Acceptance. Or an approval. I mean, it, it humbles me. Uh, every time we go on one of the international mission trips and, you know, these families are dirt poor. They have nothing, and yet they invite us into their homes. And you guys know me. I'll eat whatever you feed me, whatever's in front of me. I don't care. Lizards, snakes, duck eggs, whatever. It's a sign that they accept you, that they approve you, okay? So it's important that you eat what's offered of you. We read chapter 2. Now we're in chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. But when Cephas, or when Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, with Peter. So much so that even Barnabas, Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truths of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Folks, this is the same Peter to whom the Lord gave a vision to in Acts 10. And the Lord told Peter to not call common what God had made clean in Acts 10. This is the same Peter who preached the gospel to Cornelius and his household, which resulted in the Holy Spirit being poured out on all the Gentiles. In verse 12, Paul said that Peter used to eat with these Gentiles. But because he feared the circumcision party, he stopped eating with the Gentiles and began separating himself from them. Other believers began following his lead. Leadership is extremely important. Others fell into the same hypocrisy, including Barnabas, who had helped start the church at Antioch in the first place. The implication of Peter's actions was that the Gentiles may not be fully acceptable before God. The key phrase here is that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 14. This was right belief, wrong behavior. That's hypocrisy. Peter knew the gospel and believed the gospel, but his actions didn't reflect the gospel. Paul was quick to command faithful servants. You know that. 
You know he's quick to, to commend faithful laborers. But you know what? He was also quick to call you out if you screwed up. <laughs> Peter and Barnabas messed up. And he called them. He called them in public. He was quick to rebuke wrongdoing. So at Antioch, Paul issues a public rebuke to Peter's face when he, Peter, compromised himself in fear of the circumcision group and played the hypocrite. Today, we're not dealing with issues of whether or not Jews and Gentiles should eat together or what kind of food they're eating. But we've got plenty of inconsistencies. Because how we are behaving with our lifestyles, in our lifestyles, is not in line with the truth of the gospel. Pastor Tony, or Elder Tony, this is what I got from Charlie Dates several weeks ago. He said that. Remember that? This, too, is hypocrisy on our part. If someone claims to follow the Savior who came to preach the good news of the poor and the powerless, yet he or she ignores the poor and the powerless, that's out of line with the gospel. In the same way, if someone is following Christ but living in sexual immorality, there's hypocrisy there as well. And it should be confronted biblically. This is a very, very momentary moment of confession. Earlier in my professional publish, publishing career, about you know three decades ago, I was early in my 20s, I didn't know any better, I made some bad moral choices, bad moral choices that I could have avoided if I just put up just some moral guardrails, just some, a few, such as don't go to certain bars, don't socialize after hours with certain co-workers on your business trips. I didn't put up those moral guardrails. I'd just come out of this Christian university setting or Roberts University. I just worked in uh, this Christian publishing company for a few years. I didn't face such temptations, such as going to certain bars with certain co-workers until I got in, into the private sector. Now I found myself in these unguarded situations and I fell into temptation big time. What was worse, here's the key guys, men listen to me, listen to me. What was worse, I was in my 20s as, uh, even as a Christian, I was not connected in any small groups of men where I was being held accountable. All I needed in those few situations when I was on the road for a brother like Bob Burns or, or a brother like Mark Jones to give me a call, to wake me up and slap me out of my stupor and just say, hey, Doug, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God, so be careful what you put into your eyes. Be careful who you look at. Be, be careful which bars you go to. Or someone could have told me, hey, Doug, everything may be permissible for you to do as a Christian, but not everything is beneficial for you. Men, you need relationships to hold you accountable. Otherwise, you are sitting ducks. You are sitting ducks. That's what I'm telling you. The point I'm making, I mean, the Holy Spirit was speaking to me. I just was not listening. That was the problem, too. Holy Spirit's speaking with you all the time. 
The point I'm making is that we shouldn't just put up random moral fences for young Christians, like don't do this or don't do that, you know. Uh, it's like telling a young person, don't play pool just because the pool table's in the bars. <laughs> the Apostle Paul said that churches are very good at just telling people, uh, our people, don't handle, don't touch this, don't touch that, don't, don't taste this. That's Colossians 2.21. What we're not very good at is explaining to young Christians the reasons why we shouldn't do such and such and such a thing. We need to focus on the real issues and not the moral guardrails, okay? Take time to ex explain and re-explain the reason for the guardrails. That's what we call the discipleship process. It's not legalistic for a brother like Bob Burns or Mark Jones to walk up to me as a believer to confront my sin and my hypocrisy, even if it's, even if it's the Apostle Peter who must be confronted. Galatians reminds us how easily we drift towards both legalism and hypocrisy. On the one hand, we think that by doing good things, we curry, we earn favor before God. That's legalism. Then on the other hand, we claim to have the gospel of grace, but live just like the rest of the world. That's hypocrisy. We need to avoid both legalism and hypocrisy, which only the Word can help us do. The question is, so how do we combine right belief with right behavior in a way that pleases God? I'm glad you asked. Because Paul answers your question in verses 15 to 21 in chapter 2. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one is justified. No one will be justified. Verse 17, chapter 2, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners... Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The key word there in all of those verses is the word faith. Everything revolves around faith. Not faith plus anything else, folks. Faith and faith alone. Simply faith. Justification or right standing with God is by faith alone. Through faith in Christ, Jews and non-Jews are accepted before God. Along with faith, the other key term in these verses is justified. We are justified by faith. The term justified appears four times. Four times in verses 16 to 17. It comes from the same word in the Greek that is translated righteousness in verse 21. Martin Luther 
proclaim that justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. John Calvin referred to justification as the hinge upon which everything turns. The doctrine of justification was at the heart of the Reformation, and it's the heart of Christianity today. This is a proper definition. Justification is the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the end of chapter 2. You know what, folks? I'm not going to get through all six chapters. I'm just going to end uh, somewhere soon here. You're going to be glad I'm bringing it home in just a moment. Chapter 3, Paul says boldly, listen to this, you dear idiots of Galatia, you dear idiots of Galatia who saw Jesus Christ the crucified so plainly, who has been casting, who has been casting a spell over you? I will ask you one simple question. Did you receive the Spirit of God by trying to keep the law or by believing the message of the gospel? Surely you can't be so idiotic as to think that a man begins his spiritual life in the Spirit and then completes it by reverting to outward observances. You're saying, Elder Doug, that's not what the NIV is saying. No, I didn't read from the NIV. I read from the Phillips. That's what it says. The Living Translation puts it this way. The Living Translation puts it this way. Oh, foolish Galatians, what magician has hypnotized you and cast an evil spell upon you? That's what the Living Translation says. In other words, have you gone completely crazy? Have you lost your mind? Who stole your mind? Paul is just beside himself here. Who had hypnotized the once fully awakened Christians? Remember early in Galatians 1.6, Paul admits his amazement. I am astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Then in verse 10, he says, Chapter 3, he says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul argues that the law condemns and curses us for disobedience. That law is abolished. Christ abolished the law in his sense by bearing its curse for us on the cross. So Paul went on to say in verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. This verse also helps us to understand the sense in which Paul said we were called to be free. He goes on in chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. See, the issue in the Galatian church, the issue in the Galatian church was not obedience to the moral law of God. Rather, it was reliance on the moral law and the Mosaic ceremonial law for salvation. 
Some Jewish teachers were saying that the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. That's Acts 15.5. Christ has set us free from this Jewish insistence on observance of the law. We are freed from the curse. Those who rely on the law as a means of salvation. The most important thing for us to see in our death to the law is the purpose of our death. We died to the law in order that we might live in the realm of grace. We died to the law that we might bear fruit to God. Okay, that's according to Romans 7, 6. We die that we might serve God in the new way of the Spirit, not the old way of the written code, which is the law. Amen? Paul tells us in Galatians 3, God does more for us than just declaring us righteous by, and putting us in right standing with Him. He tells us in, in Galatians 3, 24 to 26, that the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by what? By faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. That's verse 26. He no longer calls us servants, but he adopted us as his sons. It is like we are standing. I love this example when Michael, uh, Pastor Michael preached it. Remember? When you got a judge and a criminal who was convicted for, I don't care whether it's murder or drug dealing or what, okay? The judge says, I'm going to pay for you. I'm going to pay the penalty that you owe. Folks, that's what we call justification. But you know what? I'm going to go one up on that. Because Paul goes one up on that. In Galatians 3. It's, it's like we're standing before this judge. He makes his pronouncement, okay? He, the judge, not only declares this criminal not guilty, he gets up out of the bench. He comes down to where you and I are because we are that criminal. He takes the chains off of us, and he says, Come home with me. Come home with me as my son. Come home with me as my daughter. I am taking you in to my family. He not only pays for your penalty, he's taking you into his family. J.I. Packer says, to be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. There isn't a more important theologian in the last century, the 20th century, than Karl Barth. Karl Barth, spiritual giant. And someone asked him, what is the greatest theological truth of all time? All the doctrines you've learned, what is the greatest theological truth? Karl Barth simply responded, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's it. That's the greatest theological truth of all time. And we just all wasted our seminary education. Because adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Adoption is even higher than justification. And I'm just going to leave it at that, otherwise I'll be in trouble with the Lutherans in the room. Okay? Forgive me, Lutherans. Forgive me. I'm just, you know, quoting J.I. Packer. 
okay? Galatians 3.26 summarizes the doctrine of, of adoption, okay? For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Notice that Paul doesn't say sons and daughters or children here. He purposely calls God's people sons. Be very careful. This is not an attempt for the Bible to be chauvinistic. Galatians 4, 1 to 5 says, I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he's an owner of everything. He's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God had sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Okay, in chapter 4 there, Paul is simply referring to ancient customs concerning slaves and guardians. Regardless of which culture he was referring to, each culture had a time during which a young boy, even though he was an heir to the family, would basically be treated like a slave. At a certain age, the individual status would change. He would take on the responsibilities of manhood. He would officially pass from being a child like a servant to the son. Okay? Paul did not speak of sons and daughters in this illustration because inheritance in that day was reserved for sons and not daughters. Still, the Bible is not being chauvinistic here. Paul was actually being very countercultural for his day. According to Galatians 3.28, the full rights of a son, including the full inheritance, are granted to all who believe in Christ. He says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs, according to the promise. Now I will close. God sent his son that we might receive the position of sons and daughters of God. Jesus came with a clear purpose. God sent his son to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, today's adoption process, and my, my wife is, is an adoptee, and I, I happened to glance through some of the uh, things in her photo album the other day and noticed it was a, like a two-year process for her to get adopted from Vietnam to the U.S., okay? Today's adoption process is often glamorized. Actually, it's over-glamorized, okay? As we think about all those sweet, cute, precious, innocent children all over the world just waiting to be adopted by a family. But when you look at Ephesians 2, the people who are adopted are dead in their trespasses. They're objects of wrath who follow the ruler of this world, Satan, gratifying the cravings of their sinful nature. I'll close with this quote. And listen very carefully. Dr. Russell Moore, who was a former uh, professor of mine in the theology program at Southern Seminary, he himself has adopted several children. Dr. Russell Moore, David Platt, you know, they've you know, they've, they've gone through this adoption process, and they can tell it inside out. But Dr. Moore says this, and just picture this. 
Picture this. Imagine just for a moment that you are adopting a child. As you meet with a social worker in the last stage of the adoption process, you are told that this 12-year-old child has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three years old. He persists in burning things. He persists. He attempted repeatedly to skin animals when they're alive. He acts out sexually. His social worker says, although she doesn't really fill you in on what that means, she just continues with a little family history. This boy's father, this boy's grandfather, this boy's great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Each of them committed suicide. From the dad, the granddad, the great-granddad, the great-great-granddad, all five of them committed suicide. Think for a moment. Would you want this child in your family? If you, if you adopt, if you did adopt him, wouldn't you watch, wouldn't you watch nervously as he played with your other children? Would you watch him nervously as he looks at the knife in your kitchen table? Would you leave the room as he watched the movie on TV with your daughter? with the lights out. Then Dr. Moore identifies with this potentially problematic 12-year-old child. That child is you. That child is me. That's what grace is about. That's what the gospel is telling us. That's what the gospel is telling us. Praise God that there was nothing in us at all to draw God to us because God determined to redeem us. Unless that sounds like an exaggeration of our evil and sinfulness. Just stare at the cross. Stare at the cross. Look at the picture of God's wrath against sin just being poured out on His own Son. It was no minor offense for which Jesus died. Jesus predetermined to redeem us. And he died not only just to rescue us and justify us, but to adopt us into his family. Praise God for his resolve. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Help us. Help us all, Lord, for we are so slow to learn, Lord. We're prone to forget. We're so weak to climb, Lord. Mm. We are at the bottom when we should be at the mountaintop, Lord. We're, we're pained by our graceless hearts, by our prayerless days and nights, by our poverty of love, by our laziness in running the race that you've put out before us, Lord. As we waste our hours in entertainment and unspent opportunities, Lord, 
We're blind. We're blind while the light shines around us. Take the scales. Remove the scales from our eyes as you did the Apostle Paul. Lord, cleanse us from our evil hearts of unbelief. Make it our chief joy to learn and to grow deeper in you, to meditate on you, Lord, to gaze on your beauty, to sit simply like Mary at the feet of Jesus, or lean like John on your breast. May we appeal like Peter to your love and count like Paul. All things are waste, all things dung compared to the surpassing glory of knowing you. So give us the increase. Give us the increase and the knowledge in your grace so that there may be more decision in our character, more vigor in how we respond to the purposes of God in our lives. Elevate our lives out of the pit, Father God. Give us more fervor in our devotion and more consistency in our zeal, Lord. Keep us. Keep us clean from the world's influence, Lord. May we never seek any joy in the creature, what can only be found in the Creator, in you, Lord. Let not faith cease from us seeking you until it vanishes in the sight. Lord, you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. May we live victoriously in your grace. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Hallelujah. Thank you. Hallelujah. Let's sing to the Lord this song.
can't miss the gospel today, guys. Jesus is calling. For some of us, he's calling us back where we got caught up in pride and self-righteousness. Legalism is, is alive and well. It's just different. and It can get around us, and it happens to all of us. So thank you for making us aware of that. But for those of that are here, I don't want you to miss Jesus is calling. Lyrics just set it up there for you. Forgiveness is found in Jesus Christ. So if you, if you get nothing out of this message, know that you have no, nothing to offer. You have no way of earning your salvation. It's already done. It's already finished. But you have to receive it. It's a gift that he's offering, but you have to receive the gift. And so all I want to say for those that are here that, that may not have received Jesus, stop trying to earn it. 
and receive that gift. It comes by faith, and faith alone. You can't earn it. You're not in control. You haven't learned anything over this long period of time that we've been through. We are not in control. He is. And he offers that grace to you. So for those of you that are here, for those that are listening, watching online, receive that forgiveness from Jesus Christ. Ask him for that salvation. And he will not only rescue you, as, as Elder Doug said, he will adopt you into his family. Amen. Amen. Let's close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much. Thank you, Lord, for reemphasizing over and over and over again in this service that we come before you empty. We don't have anything to offer. And yet you loved us enough to go to the cross for us. And not only to rescue us, but to, to take our sins on yourself and then offer us a gift of relationship with you. That you see Jesus in us now. That have put our faith in you. Lord, help us to walk uh, and, and, and to walk in that grace and extend that grace to others, knowing that um, none of us deserve it, but it's just your goodness and your grace. And so, Lord, help us to offer that to others as well. Go with us, Lord. Use us as, uh, as we, uh, we just acknowledge that we're vessels to be used by you as we go out in this word, dusty and dirty world. We pray that you would use us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.